y'all. Welcome to another episode of The Drip, the podcast where four academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics, all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes, or when each of us are in our own homes, in our PJs, because we are still trying to keep ourselves, our loved ones, our communities, and even people we don't like safe. Because the pandemic rages on with devastatingly uh, disproportionate consequences for particularly black and brown indigenous communities. So also just sending love out there to all those communities. I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Uh, Todd? I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American uh, literature and culture, folklore, and cultural studies at the University of St. Thomas. Woo! Adriana. I'm Adriana Estel. I am in the American Studies and English departments at Carleton College. Crystal? And I'm Crystal Moten, zooming in from Washington, D.C., where I uh, curate African-American business and labor history at the National Museum of American History. Yeah, so if it's not clear from my introduction, we all are all zooming in <laughs> from various places. Um, so in this episode, we're going to be discussing Wayadu Moore's debut novel, She Would Be King. Moore is a Liberian American author who founded a nonprofit organization called One More Book that creates and distributes culturally relevant books for underrepresented readers. Her first bookstore opened in Monrovia, Liberia in 2015. She Would Be King was chosen as a best book of 2018 by Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Entertainment Weekly, and BuzzFeed. And it was also a finalist for the Hurston Wright Award. So as always, spoiler alert, before we dig in, just a <laughs> reminder that when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. As you know, or should know, we call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. In other words, we are all about the spoilers and not about summaries. No summary. <laughs> Never. So as a way to maybe start this book, and we kind of have this conversation a lot with books, kind of thinking about the genre of magical realism meets historical events, you know, so in this book. And I was thinking about when we talked about Dread Nation, which, you know, reimagined the Civil War as with the introduction of like shamblers, right, zombies. And we had talked a little bit about how the shamblers were possibly a metaphor uh, for the fear of free black people. And Todd, I think you'd sort of talked about this notion of like, you know, quote unquote, unruliness of free black people being sort of um, embodied by the shamblers. I think we also talked about how in that book, the Civil War never ends, right? And maybe like that spoke to how, right, the ongoing struggles about racism, the subjugation of black people in the US. But I feel like my experience of reading that book was really different and that my knowledge of like Liberian history is basically non-existent compared to kind of what I know about the American Civil War. So I feel like I spent a lot of time on Wikipedia just like looking up some basic mm -hmm. history because I wasn't even sure like what was the author's reimagining and like what was stuff that like actually happened. Um, so it's kind of like thinking about how my experience of this book was different in that like I wasn't exactly sure like where those lines were, which maybe was like part of the point, right? Like maybe that's like part of why she like wrote this book in this interesting way. Um, like in the back of the and the back of the book, it sort of says that, you know, this is sort of a novel that reimagines the history of Liberia a country whose past and present are inextricably bound to the United States. So it's kind of thinking about also, and we talked a little about this, right? So thinking about it being located in these different locations, right? Sort of like there's Jamaica, the US, and then Liberia. Um, so it's curious about what your like experiences were with the like magical realism meets history in this book. Yeah. Can I jump in super quickly and give my rant about the term magical realism? Hey, I'm right behind you, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, when uh, the, the Latin American literature boom happened in the 60s, the term magical realism came about um, mainly by kind of European and North American literary critics yeah. as a way to kind of try to understand um, the sorts of stories that were being told. And um, th that got pushed back eventually, uh, both from Latin American authors and eventually by critics in North America too. But one of the, the key things, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez basically says, um, and I'm gonna mess up the quote of course, but it's essentially, you know, people call it magical realism, but it's just the life that we live, right? It is just the air that we breathe. Um, so for him and actually the, for Latin American critics, the term that's more used is lo real maravilloso, 
marvelous reality, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the idea is that when we call something magical, we're removing it from, we're, we're making it exotic, right? Something weird and even dangerous. Um, and for him, it was merely like the stuff of life that, um, that he was just telling the stories that needed to be told um, from mm -hmm. the world around him. And I actually think that's pretty relevant to the way the novel works, right? There's this whole tension for our three main characters, right? Are they cursed, right? Is Bessa cursed? Or is this a gift? Is this magic? Or is it just like, you know, like this, um, uh, like power, right, that she has? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I have always sort of thought of magic realism as a kind of Eurocentric kind of label which is you put the, that critics put on literature that describe things that they were wondering is that real or not like mm. how are we supposed to understand this thing that we don't believe is real so we call it magic mm. and you know i i i think i think a lot about the texts that have that term applied to them and the ones that don't because mm. you know for in a, in a lot of ways maybe the a book that should be called magical realism but is never called that is the bible <laughs> and one of the reasons for that is because the people who uh, venerate the Bible believe that it is true, right? They be believe that that's not magic, that's real, right? So you don't call it magical realism if you believe that it actually happened, right? Yeah. So I think it sort of points to that kind of, you know, separation between um, the world that we think about and understand from a Western perspective, let's say, and the the world that looks foreign and strange to us and that we don't really have words to describe, um, which is usually the wor world of, uh, you know, black and brown people or the global south or whatever. So I think, yeah, I think, and, and I want to say, like, I, I saw, I listened to a couple of interviews with Wayetta Moore and she never called, she never referred to her work as magic realism. Yeah. She called it speculative fiction, which yeah. I think would connect it much more to you know something like dread nation or kindred. Um, yeah. yeah kindred or yeah, yeah so it, you know um there is sort of the term afrofuturism which is was really really popular you know five years ago but it's less so now and i think yeah. you know black speculative fiction or there's you know some terms like that that are being used more often these days but that would really speak more to your kind of thinking about the reimagining of the history that mm -hmm. is in the novel. But to me, like to think about the things that happen, um, like the, you know, the, the gifts that they have, the ability to, you know, disappear and um, all those sorts of things. So the fact, you know, that June Day is born to a ghost, right? Like that's, the yeah. thing. I love that. It's so oh, that awesome. whole sequence. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, like th this is, it strains our, our, our understanding of what is real and what isn't real. Mm -hmm. But for people who, um, who sort of exist within those contexts, it's very real, right? And, and I know I've been talking a long time, but I want to say one more thing. What, the way that Wyatu Moore uh, explained it in this one interview was she said to the person who was interviewing her, she said, if we were sitting here and we started to get into an argument and then I got up and I left, but I just flew away instead of walking. Um, she's like, certain people would be like, how did you fly? And blah, blah, blah. And she's like, but Liberians would be like, what caused the argument? Like, um, were they were they together before? Or like, <laughs> whatever, like the flying part wouldn't be the mm. thing that they focus on. And so that tends to happen in texts like this where it's the flying, it's the, the disappearing, the invisibility, it's all this other stuff that seems unusual to us, mm. it seems like magic that we focus on rather than the other stuff that's real. You yeah. Know? Um, Crystal, did you want to say something? Because I had a question about that. No, we can, we can move on. So I guess with that though, right? I mean, I get the like European lens on it, but to me it was interesting that it's like the Vi people themselves who see Bessa as being cursed and as being mm -hmm. like a witch, right? So it wasn't like the Europeans necessarily who saw her as such. So I'm sort of curious about how do we like think about um, that interpretation of like who she was and is that like maybe more like a gender thing or like how do we kind of understand uh that well i mean like every you know culture has its way of sort of understanding seeing the world and understanding things and i think you're right i mean i think you know you know in this at, at the beginning of the novel you get what two other stories about you know so-called witches right um you know the woman who kills her cat mm -hmm. and her house falls on her and that's what supposedly curses Bessa. 
And right. there's a story about another woman who lives to be 180 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then goes to and, the moon. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's not men who are um, being sort right. of passed out. Or, so I think, you're, I think the idea that this might have something to do with um, gender is certainly on point. But I think like every culture has these sort of beliefs and practices and understandings that um, some, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes try to explain things that they themselves don't understand. Right. And, right. Um, you know, there's no culture where we could look at their practices, their beliefs, their storytelling, whatever, and be like, yeah, that's all good. Like we can, I, I can get down with every part of that. Right. <laughs> always. There's right. always something where you're like, why are they doing that? that seems subjective. Like somebody's being left out. Somebody's but, being like. Right. So the point know, is the to try to understand. Is, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. The larger point is that like for the Vi, it, I mean, of course she's cursed, right? Mm-hmm. Like she was born at the same time that this, mm-hmm. like, right? right? So like it's, it's, um, it's not magic. It's like tautology. It, 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 right. It yeah. is. It is. And Bessa's life is shaped um, and forced into a particular um, route because of it. Mm, um, and I think, so what's fascinating to me is that once she gets lodged in this Monrovian life, right, with, um, you know, Maisie teaching her to accept this new God, um, that there's a way in which that's the cursed life for her, right? Or the, the you know, it's the, the wrong life. There's that moment when she finally, mm. she wants to really talk to the men in prison, right? The Vi mm. warriors who have come, um, to um they're in the that suburb i'm going to call it a suburb that's not quite the right word but like <laughs> situ right so yeah. they're in that prison there and um yeah. and she's trying to convince her husband that she, you know he needs to listen to them and she tears off her um her top and she tears off her bottom and mm. um there's this amazing uh description of her basically you know um Let's see. Naked now before him, free now and equally unafraid. Page 270. Right. So if part of the book is basically all about like, what is freedom? What does that actually Mm -hmm. mean? How are, how do you get to be free? Is it a legal condition? Is it an epistemological condition? Right. Like what, Mm -hmm. what does it um, take? Um, She was not really free in Monrovia right until mm-hmm. this moment when she recognizes the pull to her past and to her vi roots and her existence in this current present mm-hmm. and she has to be both she can't deny either one mm-hmm. yeah that's good yeah and i was kind of thinking about like her freedom but also like the freedom of like her people and like mm-hmm. all like the indigenous people and i guess like the african-american settlers there was sort of that she is the one who sort of leads that charge or sort of like brings people together, right? And sort of like thinking about like that it's like an indigenous woman, right? That's sort of like kind of re, like that part of the reimagining of freedom is about focusing on, right? An indigenous woman kind of like talking about freedom. And was, one of the um, reviews that I read was by Shannon Gibney, who actually her like latest novel, Dream Country, also involves um, kind of the journey of like a librarian and a librarian American family. And, you know, one of her um, critiques of the book was that in some way that it leaves um, kind of unexamined some of the like colonial tensions and contradictions and especially kind of thinking about what is the price of nation building, right? Like what is the price mm-hmm. of nation building? And she sort of points to this, um, I think this was Gerald, like who has that like whole speech about, you know, we are free and this is, um, I'm trying to see where it is in the book because this is like from her quote. And sort of, you know, has that whole, I think it's, it's either Henry or Gerald, right? Kind of talking about how, you know, we need to be free. And it's like about, Gerald, yeah. um, is it Gerald? I think right? so. So uh, like this is, the liberty is what we built. Yeah, the liberty is what will build this nation through the next century, the century after, the century after. We will die reciting and in the name of our new and honest freedom and the name of our liberty, we will call this land our new and bold and free and honest country, Liberia. Right. And sort of this rousing speech of like nationalism. But to me, like I actually read that as, like that's like a speech that like a European settler of like the U.S. could make, right? And I think like in the book, there are all these hints at sort of the troubled nature of, right? Like African-Americans going to settle in Liberia. And so I didn't read that book as sort of a, I mean, sorry, I didn't read that quote necessarily as like an uncritical sort of endorsement of, right? The kind of nationalism that this character was 
espousing, especially because it comes before Bessa has her moment, right? Bessa has her moment in terms of like making her speech about freedom, which I think is actually a different kind of vision than like what this was saying. Um, so it's kind of, so I don't know, like, I mean, I get the critique, but I was like, I don't know if I actually think that it is, that it isn't, right? Looking at the tensions and like contradictions, because I think it does actually in these like lots of different ways. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I agree when I, um, reading the moments in the text where the African-American settlers are interacting with, you know, the, their indigenous um, um, workers, be there people who were working in the house or doing kind of construction work or other, I mean, there were, there were these ways in which those relationships mirrored, mm -hmm. you know, what they had just escaped. Yeah. Um, yep. And so that kind of just, in, in one sense was revealing to me of the kind of challenges of uh, trying to like how does a group of people define their own freedom you know in the context of being on you know some in, in exactly yeah. in or on someone else's land yeah. Yeah. and then what is that what what then becomes of the relationship between those people um, and the indigenous folks that live there, and how is that even more complicated by the fact that these people are all brown? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that you know goes back to part of your original question, or something that came out in your original question was this: um, that we don't like. This is not something that you get taught about as a student in the United States. Like this is such an important uh, mm -hmm. part of thinking about um, the history of slavery in the Americas. I mean, it's it's so important, and and I, I I for many years have been thinking like I need to get me a good book to read about the history of Liberia because I don't really know, and um, I even know a lot of Liberians. I teach a lot of Liberians. You mm -hmm. we have like thirty five thousand Liberians living in Minnesota, I think something like that. Um, so the I think it it it's it's a history that is you know basically ignored or obscured. Uh, for uh, those of us here in the United States, and it's a, and it's a, but it's an interesting telling and sort of educational history because mm -hmm. it it sort of plays out all of those issues, um, mm -hmm. and even more like you're like right. you're saying, Crystal, right? Like I was thinking about, I mean, the the the, the question you probably want to you, you're compelled to ask right off the bat is, well, how could they treat these people like this? Mm -hmm. And but it actually, when you think about it, it becomes pretty easy to see why they would, yeah. right? I mean, mm -hmm. because they're being sort of this given this, like this is yours. This is a gift um, from the uh, you know the American colonization society or whatever. Like we're giving you this now. Now make something good. And they think like, okay, well we need to build something in the way that we understand it should be built. This is what we've seen. This is what we understand to be, you know, um, being educated, being civilized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And they're basically just sort of recreating or reproducing mm -hmm. the kind of hierarchy that they came from where they were at the bottom. Right. But who doesn't want to be at the top of the hierarchy? <laughs> right. You know, so yeah. it's really interesting to, to have that sort of played out for us through these characters. And Bessa is like, she she falls into it right like there's this whole thing where she's yeah. like changing where she's like mazy right yeah, so, yeah 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 and you you get to see it on that really personal level mazy yeah. who gave her everything right yeah. like if it wasn't for mazy she would never have been in this situation and then she sort of slowly moves away from her because yeah. that's where you have that's to what you do. Yeah. yeah. Do. Um, just quickly, the, that quote that I read was on 224, and it's by Mr. Johnson, who's one of the oh, mayors of I was um, wrong. the different Sorry. colonies. And so, yeah, I, I was thought like, it was like, you, I was like you're Henry. right. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I also feel like that's like speaks to structure too, because remember, like all the mayors are maybe African American, but like the governor is white, right? So there was right. also like yes. the structure that was already like built into mm -hmm. even like where they get to be free, like they're not actually free. And so I think that was. Um, that was interesting. And I guess my question then is like, do we feel like Bessa's vision, does it flatten that hierarchy by the end, right? Um, so just like curious about, um, like, right, like if like part of, <laughs> if, if part, sorry, you'll have to edit this out, Todd. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> trying to figure out timing people. This is why we're relaxing. Um, anyway, like does Bessa by the end give us a, 
non-hierarchical vision of like what freedom and what solidarity could look like, right? Because I think one of the things, like I think one of like what I was thinking about like Gibney's, um, you know, sort of critique is that like does this reimagining of like where everybody comes together at the end to like fight the European colonizers, right? Is that like a, um, <laughs> I know it's like a magical, it, whatever. It's like, yeah, is, is it, it like is a realistic, it, right, like, is, you know, vision of like solidarity? Is it like possible for us to reimagine like the history of Liberia and history of like maybe Africa, I don't know, right? Like more broadly and like colonized mm -hmm. peoples more broadly going differently. Yeah, well, I mean, I think like the, you're right like so if you if you do look at the history of liberia i mean you can see that the last what what is it that since 1985 that you know there's been two civil wars and mm -hmm. uh and and the, the reason why there are so many liberians in minnesota is because of that mm. um, that that disruption and that violence and and uh, all that's that's gone on there but for like all of those what 150 years or whatever they did pretty well and uh they were fight they were basically creating a nation in the face of an entire world that was against them like i basically think about liberia and haiti in the same way right like here are the two the first two black republics in the world and the world did everything that they could the western world did everything that they could to ensure that they would not be successful now, maybe not as explicitly for Liberia, Liberia that's right. but yeah. there's mm -hmm. still Western nations that either want to take over the land that Liberia is on once it's established, or they're still um, capturing slaves and kidnapping um, African people, right? So yeah. um, I think they're up against something that's, that contributes to their instability later in the history. Sorry. I think you just go, why are you raising your hands? <laughs> Because I don't want to interrupt. I'm not going to interrupt. interrupt. We're on a Zoom call. I'm I can raise interruptible. my hand. <laughs> you are not interruptible, let's face it. I do it all the time. I'm yeah. going to bring us back to, I don't know, the novel. So let's talk about this novel here. <laughs> Why can't we talk about history now? Well, I think it is about his. Because I think hey, that's the hey, thing about like. What did I just say? We are on. talking about you, the novel. You paused. Oh, so wow. maybe I'll just ask a question. You can come back to it too, right? Because if it's like speculative, no, no, I actually had something to say. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Can I just ask this question no, as well? No, because yeah, I had something comment. to say. Oh my gosh! So. Adriana, oh my god! Yeah, go right ahead. You're going to have to like edit bunches of this out. No, please nope. leave in, Adriana. Not it's not that happening. She needs to go. <laughs> so the end of the novel, yeah. right? Which is about this kind of certainly super utopic. Um, maravilloso real kind of vision of like different um, groups coming together and very importantly this trilogy of people right like June Day and Bessa and and um, Norman right it is all in the present tense mm. all of it is in the present tense and I think that's really fascinating right so that um, actually I'm, I'm you know it's not completely all in the present tense but there where is are, like, it in the moments where it's really fascinating like um, you know, that it moves into this kind of present um, moment. So on page 291, I love this uh, when um, June Day appears, right? Uh, he was happy again, not only to assist in the rescue of a kindred soul, but to be cast in a grand collision, to arrive when his past and future needed him as much as the girl did. So, right, there's this sense of grandiosity. Um, and 293, as each boat arrived at the port, Norman Aragon fought with the Frenchmen for their weapons. So that moves into the present tense. And then at the end, even though she thoughts in the past tense, like Bessa is in the present, right? She, we will not die, she's saying out loud. And I, mm. there's, it's something very like, um, like there's this pause in the book at the end, which we gestured at before, I think, right? Like, how does this actually turn out? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know from history, right, which is what Todd's getting at, it's not utopic. And it kind of stops in this moment when the possibility is utopic. So, right. but it has right. to stop there in order for it yeah. to be. I think that was like going to be my point, right? Because it's like, we have the 150 years topic. Like she, go, she doesn't like reimagine it in like the present in some ways, right? She like can. she imagines the yeah. past. Right. So if it is like speculativeness, is that a word? About I'll buy it. Yeah. About the past rather than about our future. Like, what is that? 
do for like our reimagining of history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's and a I don't, great question. Yeah. I, I shouldn't have interrupted you earlier. Thank you very much. Because <laughs> <laughs> let me actually speak to your point. <laughs> Everybody's getting interrupted. No, but I think it actually speaks to your point, right? This notion of like, I mean, I don't quite see where she moves to the present, but I kind of get the sense of like, it's kind of like action in the present. Is that kind of what you mean? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Right. Um, and like, obviously her last line, which is like, we will not die. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, so yeah, I'm just trying to think through like, what is the speculativeness of this book do for us? Right. In terms of like imagining or reimagining. Um, I think you said like survival and freedom was what I was thinking about in terms of like your very first point, Adriana, about like, these gifts that like these folks have right that it's about um like thinking about right the ability to like not be seen the ability to like live forever and the ability to be strong right in this like extraordinary sense for june day like if those are like modes of like freedom and survival and like what does that mean to like yeah how do we reimagine those things can i add to that i think the the um the narrator is the is a fourth has a fourth gift which is Mm -hmm. ubiquity right like which Mm -hmm. is like gift to be everywhere but also to be in all different times Mm -hmm. you know so i think that maybe connecting that to what adriana was saying about that sort of shift to the present i mean the narrator is always in the present tense no matter where she is in time right Mm -hmm. and for most of the novel um well i mean that's not quite true right we start out the novel not understanding who the narrator, who the narrator is. Right. right? And we get June Day's story and realize right. that it's um, Charlotte. 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 I'm going to say Clementine for some reason, but Charlotte. <laughs> and then at the That's very right. end, she is Kilimanjaro, right? The wind gets re corporealized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I missed that. <laughs> yeah, me too. It, it ain't easy. It, it is not. Read it ain't easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I. Wait, so she becomes the mountain? I mean, I still, That's... like, it's. Oh, go, go ahead. No, you talk. go ahead. I don't want to. The... <laughs> <laughs> I don't have my end up. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, okay, this is going to go off a little bit. So help me get back to Kilimanjaro. Right, the three um, Bessa, Junde, and Norman meet when they first get to Africa, right? Like, and they're in this kind of like, they're in a holding cell together, right? Or uh, That's Norman and Junde, yeah. Yeah, Junde oh. and Norman are. Oh, and then they find Bessa who is right. like near left the, for dead. Yeah. Left well, for she dead. was um, bit by a snake. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, so, so then they travel together, right? They, they forge this bond and then they all go off on their own at some point. And it's, it seems like destiny, right? Like Norman's like, look, you have to do this on your own. I have to go back that way. Right. Like mm. we are who we are. Bessa, like we, we will all meet up someday together. And it's just this mythic kind of overlay of like, you know, this belonging together and mm. who they are as a trio, which I think is really fascinating given the kind of Christianity that's on the other side of the story with Liberia, right? What is this trilogy and Trinity compared to, you know, the Trinity Mm. that's underlying Christianity? Mm. Um, They also represent the three, the three elements of Liberia, right? The indigenous, the, the um, Mm. Caribbean and Mm -hmm. the America Liberians, right? So there's like that too. Mm. Well, now I feel dumb for not knowing that. <laughs> no, I was just trying to add to what you were saying. Like, still like, who's the narrator? <laughs> yeah, you got that Kilimanjaro thing, so I think you got yourself some bonus okay. credit. So, so getting back to this trilogy, or not trilogy, but the Trio. Trinity, right? They, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, they've been apart, and um, and on page two eighty seven, we meet uh, the wind who is now Kilimanjaro. But she's taken the shape of an old woman. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're right, like, uh, Anita, that it's the name of a mountain, it's the name of a place. But she's also this woman who she knew that Junde would want to take care of. Yeah. All right, I'm like, oh, like, yeah, 287. She says, I am. <laughs> <laughs> you missed that. Huh? I missed that. <laughs> There's a lot of words in here. Yeah, by that, by, by the time you get to 287, it's just a lot you're trying to kind of yes. contain and hold together. Okay, I mean, I think, I didn't, I didn't, didn't we all have the experience of when you got done with the book, you're like, 
well, I guess I should start it over again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's actually so long that you can't sort of keep everything in your head from the beginning. You have to go back to the beginning. That's right. Well, yeah. And like, we need this wind because like without the wind, right? Like yeah. this whole section, page 287 to 289, I'm like, oh, right. I understand yeah. so much more now. Right. And right. This whole like page 288, you know, she's like the girl with the biggest gift of us all, life. If she was not a girl, or if she was not a woman, if she was not a woman, or if she was not a witch, she would, she be, would be king. She <laughs> would be king. Yeah. And I turned to I turned to myself because I was reading. I was like, "That's the title of the book." <laughs> <laughs> I did the second right. time. I totally missed it the first time. <laughs> um, I was kind of thinking about the whole ghost. It's kind of reminded me of like, you know, because she's the wind, but there's all these stories in Hindu mythology of like mortals falling in love with gods. And then like in Hindu mythology, there's like um, each like nature element has a god. So there's like a wind god, there's like a sun god. And there's and a lot of the times like the mortals, um, you know, sort of have sex like outside of marriage and it's like a whole like illegitimate thing. So it's just kind of like interesting to me. I mean, maybe that has nothing to do with it, but that's kind of what it reminded me of. But I think to go back to your point also about, I think, Research, or are we saying that like these three people are also like they represent those three things, but Trinity, but they're also like mixed, right? In these like interesting ways, right? Because um, mm-hmm. like Norman is uh, what, you know, British and, British um, and, and yeah. Jamaican, Maroon. Maroon. Yeah. And then um, June Day is like ghost and human, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not sure about, I guess, where Bessa would fit into this in terms of, like, I mean, just in terms of her cursed status, maybe, mm-hmm. right? True. And she, like, even as when she was born cursed, right, she has this red hair, right, mm-hmm. which uh, is apparently super unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's true. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's marked as special. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right from the beginning. Yeah. And I, I mean, to- like, that's, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Crystal. I was just gonna, if you have something on this point, because I want to go back to, um, Anita, a question you had earlier. I, I was only going to say quickly that, you know, there's this, this thing about whether being special is good or bad, right? To be, it's the way that you see it, right? So mm-hmm. if you're special, that could be cu- being cursed. If you're special, that could be gift. being gift, gifted. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so from her point of view, like right when people see her, they recognize or they, they, they recognize this, this fiery red hair mm-hmm. as setting her apart as someone special or different and it's just the way that people see her so even the even the americo liberians you know in monrovia they make her dye her hair right. mm-hmm. so that she fits in right so that she doesn't mm-hmm. stand out as this sort of special person it's not like she dyed her hair red it was just naturally red like that right yeah. right and at some point like um, when red. she's ha- yeah. at the end of the novel her hair starts to shine red through the dye right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um when she's kind of gaining back these powers to be who she is. And I think it's really interesting, Anita, to think of them each as hybrids in this way, um, as not quite fitting in and therefore belonging together as they mm. fight for, you know, like what they've, they, in some ways they all choose to fight for Liberia, which is really fascinating. Crystal? I was thinking about, Anita, your question about kind of what or what should we take or what should we get from um, these three characters, their kind of gifts that they have. And I was just thinking about the journey that each of the characters have toward number one, realizing, you know, what their gift is, the impact that has on uh, the connections they connections they do or don't have to their community. And then each of their decisions to at the end kind of accept that part of themselves and then use that gift toward kind of fighting for Liberia. And so I think that's one of the things we could, we can take from this, right? That strength, um, being able to disappear or hide, you know, immortality, um, um, taking that, those parts of ourselves that might be ridiculed, um, but accepting them and then using them toward a broader struggle for freedom. And so, you know, that could be, I was thinking that that could be kind of a message too that we could take from um, from these three characters. And there's this added thing, right, that Norman at one point, right, he starts carrying, you know, as they get these gifts, he and Junde from the villages that they help out, right, he has, um, 
you know, um, clay and he has paper to write on. Mm -hmm. And he talks about collecting stories, not just the stories from these villages, because the various griots like are maybe killed, right? Or they um, are, um, have been, you know, torn from their land. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, the importance of collecting these stories and of recognizing where they're from and telling his own stories is, um, I, yeah. it's funny because I felt, I thought that was going to be a bigger part of the end mm -hmm. of the novel. Mm -hmm. Um, and it eventually fell away. I think, uh, you know, maybe in part because of course, when you're physically fighting for freedom, um, you, you can't, yeah, that's not all. Right. Yeah, it's hard to do mm -hmm. both. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Was there anything else about the, like the title of the structure that, people wanted to kind of think about because um, the other question I think we wanted to kind of maybe come to was thinking about this book in relation to a reading home going um, and kind of whether we oh, no. see this as like a feminist text. Now let's go back to the title for just a second because I think one of the things that really stands out to me about um, is that the title when you start the novel she would be king it feels predictive right that you're going to start reading this novel and you're meeting someone who is going to be king right because this is a forceful kind of like she would be king <laughs> um i don't know i felt very tokenish to tolkien-esque mm -hmm. you know what i mean about yeah. it um and then right when you get to this line on 288 you realize that it's a it's a counterfactual right that in fact she can never be king because she's a woman mm -hmm. um because she's a witch mm -hmm. um uh, and there's something really um deeply i don't know if pessimistic is the word that i actually want but there's something it takes the sail out of your wings um the sail out of the wind out of your sails wind out of your sails yeah. wind out of your sails yeah <laughs> I think that's it. wow did i mess that one up anyway, i like the sail out of your wings i was gonna go with that <laughs> i thought like that so, was reasonable man and like i mean given that this is the wind talking right yeah so, yeah <laughs> um yeah so there's this moment where you you realize this whole novel actually is about what could have been mm -hmm. if if women weren't understood in particular ways in all of their societies, right? right. Whether you're in the Viya community or in Liberia, in mm -hmm. the US, like I think gender oppression is, it's differently configured in each of these places and slightly different times, but it is always part of the story that is being told. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which yeah. interestingly, like I feel like the other way to read is like she would be king and then she'd be a king who would basically be all about power place and hierarchies. Right. So, and actually yeah. like being mm -hmm. a woman That's and being true. a witch, like gave her these ways of thinking about the world that are maybe speaking oh, against true. like being a king. Maybe. I like that. Cause I was, I was actually thinking huh. at the end, like, wouldn't it be great if she was, you know, the leader because she's the one who's thinking about, who's thinking about mercy and who's mm -hmm. thinking about understanding why right. the Vi warriors did this. And it's not just because she's from that village. I mean, that's part of it, but also it's because she's just thinking about it. I mean, I, I, I think there's nothing that makes, I mean, there's actually a lot of things that characters do in this novel that make, make my blood boil, but <laughs> the, the, when, um, is it uh, uh, her husband, Gerald, Gerald, when he's basically saying like, we have to kill them to send a message, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, they have to be killed or people or another group will do this again. Mm -hmm. Like that's really like, that's, the, that's how you're going to think about, you know, the, the punishment because mm -hmm. they didn't, what did they do? They just like ransacked a field or something like that. They didn't mm -hmm. kill anyone. Mm -hmm. They, they just messed so. up a field or something. So they're going to hang all these warriors to send a message. Mm -hmm. And she immediately saw that that knew that that was wrong. There was no way that they could, that they should mm -hmm. do that. Right. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess what, you know, to pick up on what you're saying, her experience of being a woman, being excluded, being an outsider, being called a, a witch, all these sort of things made her identify with the side of the, of the, the people who were, you know, basically being oppressed, right? Even if they were the ones who also oppressed her, which I think is right. actually powerful. Right, right, mm -hmm. right. Yes. Um, yeah. And when you think about it, right, then we get these stories in all of these sites, which are about, you know, so with Bessa, it, we get the story of her mother and um, her oppression within the village. 
um, we get the story of Charlotte, mm-hmm. um, but then later also of Henrietta and Darlene, um, yeah, and her, and then through her Darlene, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we get both of their stories within the household of I can't remember the name of the family. They were yeah. called the Miss something. Yeah. Oh man, I forgot their name. Emersons. The Emersons. Emerson, right? Yeah. Um, we also get the story of um, of Norman's mother, whose name I'm totally spacing on. Like Nani. 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 And I mean, essentially, right? I mean, uh, her rape and mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know absorption into uh, what's his name's household, right? As a, a quote wife. Column. Column. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he and he's sort of like, I mean, that is that whole sort of story is just like so <sighs> awful. But mm-hmm. I mean, it it it's reminiscent of the way that um, Western mm-hmm. Europeans have have visited, have have shown up in the world, right? And they show up and they they express this kind of disgust about what the native people are doing and then they kind of fall in love with them and then they rape them and they, you know, they do all this really horrible, horrible stuff and nowhere is it more explicitly rendered than in that part of the, of the novel, you know? And uh, it made me, you know, made me think a a lot about the sort of early, early practitioners in my own field, you know, in folklore who um, engage in some of the same stuff, you know, where they would, you know, Bronislaw yeah, Malinowski, uh-huh. most famously of all, who in the Trobriand Island, Islands, you know, sort of mm. had this whole, he had his, his scholarly book and then his, right. his, his uh, uh, diary was published and mm. he was wrestling with his desire for all these brown women, right? Like, it's like, oh, Gross. oh, and that's kind of like what's going on here with, yeah. with Column Aragon too, right? Um, it, it's really awful. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to silence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that story is a lot, right? I mean, all the stories are, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's well, like that. One thing that's really fascinating to me about the novel is that even though, like, I would say gender oppression, the shaping of gender through these societal structures is this large part of the novel. The protagonists, right, are, there's, you know, um, and this will get, get us back to a question of feminism, right? You know, Bessa, but then also then June Day and mm-hmm. Norman, right? So what does it mean that um, even as, like, we're talking about um, gender oppression over here, right, is kind of like producing uh, the impetus by which the narratives start, right? Um, the the figures that are asked to carry these narratives are, um, you know, predominantly men. men. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, I guess it's still like, I mean, obviously there's three characters, but it's, to me, like, Bessa is still the, like, center, right? But then, and totally. then there's also the wind, which I, like is feminine yeah. in this um, yeah. Yeah. That's rendering of it. Well, but so. and, and I guess it just, for me, it goes back to um, kind of how feminism and feminist studies, I think a lot of what we've seen is, you know, equating that always with women, right? True. That it just equals women, right? True. But I guess what I've been thinking about as we've been thinking about whether this is a feminist or how this could be a fem- feminist text is, you know, again, as you all have just mentioned, how the characters are engaging with, um, you know, gender structures of power. But then I also was thinking about June Day and Norman's relationship and kind of that homosocial queer relationship mm-hmm. um, and how, especially June Day, really desire the, uh, to be in relationship and didn't want to leave. And so, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. what did that mean for us to be seeing, um, you know, this relationship between, you know, these two men and this, mm-hmm. this, this, you know, siblinghood that they were trying to develop and then having to have that kind of wrenched apart. And so mm-hmm. kind of thinking about that also, you know, how else is, you know, how else are we seeing uh, gendered structures and the ways that we're looking at relationships and family structures and, yeah. and, you know, and those types of questions as well. That's such an excellent point because there's also the relationship with, between Bessa and Maisie, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is incredibly loving and intimate yeah. um, and has these moments where, you know, you, I was reading Bessa as, trying to figure out, right? Like how much of this was romantic love and how yeah. much of it was mm-hmm. uh, sisterly love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah, think I she would have preferred to be with Maisie had she not really been forced to have to go. Right. Yeah, with Gerald. Gerald yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. And I think it's both. I don't remember June 
uh, actually, I guess also for June Day, right? Because like all three of them being these like hybrids and being different, like there's like a loneliness, right, to their mm-hmm. existence. But and I think Norman and like both Bessa at some point explicitly are like, oh, like they've never had a friend, right? Mm-hmm. Like in this notion mm-hmm. of like, what does that mean? And what does that mean? Like how difficult it is to build relationships living in oppressive structures, right? Because in some ways yeah. like that's, you could, it could be like torn, A, like it could be torn apart at any moment, right? Because you don't, you don't necessarily have control. But also like, I think that's like interesting to me to kind of think about like the range of relationships that we see in the book, mm-hmm. right? And to like, yeah. Well, and so like one of the, um, God, you guys are so smart because this is really making me think about um, if we're talking about gendered structures of oppression that happens to the family primarily, right? So mm-hmm. how does this novel in some ways um, through these kind of like alternate um, stories about friendship, right? And how you construct friendship um, uh, in, in moments and structures of oppression. Um, how is that kind of counter to family structures, right? Mm. Um, and so family structures are part of domination. Mm-hmm. Right. They seem, they're safe, right? They provide you with stability in known ways. But like, especially like by the time we get to Monrovia, and um, the families there, it's, it's um, mm-hmm. like, as I think, Anita, you were saying much earlier, it's like replicating the, the structures that they knew from the U.S., mm-hmm. right? That they couldn't have sometimes, right? Because I mean, right. thinking about, right, sort of folks who were enslaved, like their marriages and their sort of kinship wasn't respected, right? So like mm-hmm. replicating those like very heteronormative kinds of relationships, right? In right. like Monrovia, like maybe makes sense, but also the novel pushes back against that to like think about, right? How do we think about alternative forms of kinship as just as powerful or maybe even better for thinking about freedom and like, right? Like what would that look like, right? That we can have all these other kinds of intimacies and like, yeah, I think and like kind of like collective kinship, right? Because then we also need to imagine that collective kinship as like going beyond like our own groups, right? Which is like what's trying, what's what, like what would have saved Liberia, right? Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's yeah. what they're really going for at yeah. the end, sort of like kinship um, between groups who you know supposedly don't get along or aren't equal through from the viewpoint of of one group of people, right? right. Um, and I was thinking like you know, this stuff that you guys are talking about is really great. And I was thinking, it made me think of, you know, one of the most important relationships is the relationship between Bessa and Safua. Mm. How that is a relationship that cannot be sort of consummated or cannot Mm -hmm. develop because of the strictures of the community in which they live. Mm. And, um, And that she really pines for him for years and years and years and years. I mean, when she when she thinks that she's seen him again yeah. at the end and then it's his son, you know, I mean, she's, there's a way in which she's devastated by that. Right. But right, then yeah. um, that's part of the impetus for her to do what she has to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Which also makes me think, Ajana, going back to our conversation about time that we had a little bit earlier, it must've been like a longer time if he had time to like, have a son who would be old enough to be a warrior unless he was unless he was much older to begin with i don't actually remember but i feel like they were similarly aged he was older than her he was older than bessa by about like six or seven years okay that's it though right Mm -hmm. so i feel like she Mm -hmm. may she might be also older and like but the the boy is only is not that old either though right like the, the so prince, like a young, young yeah, prince. he's pretty young. Mm-hmm. Well, he's got to be old enough to be Poros, though, right? Because that's a ceremonial so that's, thing. So I he's got to be at least like adolescence. Yeah. I thought they said something. He's either fifteen or nineteen. I can't remember. Yeah. Okay. Like a teenager. Oh, yeah, just he's like a teenager. Yeah, he's a teenager, right? Yeah. So just like, because I, I think one of the things we're thinking about is like the passage of time in this novel, right? But I mean that it's like much more compressed than like Homegoing, which covers like, I don't know what, was it like 200, 300 years or something yeah, like that? Yeah. So this is maybe more like yeah, at least. 30, yeah. I don't know, mm-hmm. like-ish. I mean, um, I can't, it, well, maybe? I mean, I guess if we count like, you know, starting with say Charlotte, right? Like who's at the kind oh, of early true. stage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Right, but I think Junde and Norman and... And Bessa, you know, like, I think it's, it's so hard to figure out, but we're just supposed to think of them as kind of like, no matter how old they are, they are contemporaries. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially for Bessa, because she, she doesn't die. So that's right. like her yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. And that was something we were talking about before we started recording everyone where, like, what is, how old does she look? <laughs> yeah. How old actually is she? Is she going to age? 
we can quite figure that out. <laughs> what does this mean that she's going to live forever? Or maybe well, that's and, just and because, yeah. it, because it ends on this like uh, I will not. We will not die. I will not die. Right, mm-hmm. and then yeah. she falls onto the sand, like you know, penetrated by a bullet or a knife. A bullet? No, a bullet. bullet. Awaiting her resurrection. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, like any novel that's going to play with the word resurrection. Like, I mean, I find it really fascinating, especially given like again, like you know, Trinity. Oh my God, the whole kind of like fighting not fighting against the Christianity of Liberia and Monrovia, but recognizing its complicity, right, mm-hmm. in some of the hierarchical oppression going on. Um, it's really fascinating to think about, like, the, yeah, the utopia that this book offers. We, mm-hmm. we you know, and in like the Bible, right, getting back to Todd's point about the Bible, like <laughs> the Bible, you don't get, like, the aftermath of the resurrection, right? You mm-hmm. only get the hope and the faith that mm. it is so. And you, yeah. that's, that's what we end with, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can, um, I was just thinking about, you, you, you guys were talking about this earlier. We were making the comparison between this book and Yajiasi's book. And um, I, I th- you know, I think I liked Homegoing more than I like this book, mm. um, but this book has gotten plenty of accolades. I mean, there all the reviews are very good. Um, you know, lots of great blurbs in the inside cover. It's a very popular, and it's a both our first uh, first novels for, the, for both authors. Um, and I'm just thinking about you know what is it about this book that that is appealing to people? Because I thought it's not the easiest book to read. I mean, I, I, I don't think that, and both of them are like that. I mean, in, in different ways, you know, um, homegoing because it's such a long period of time that it covers and so many characters, even more characters in this book. Mm -hmm. And I had to make a, you know, like family tree and a map and all this kind of stuff (laughs) to figure out what the heck was going on. Um, So, I mean, there are ways in which that book sort of defies being comprehended. And yeah. I think this book is, does that in some ways too. But is it this um, the centering of this female character? Is that something that makes this book so appealing? Um, is it the you know sort of speculative nature of it, the imagine imaginative nature of it, or the embracing of the kind of folklore? You know, this kind of ins- being inspired by a Liberian folklore and the sort of embracing of that as as a normal part of, of the lives of these characters? Like, what what is it do you guys think it is? I wonder if it's also just that it's a, I mean, I think for me, part of it is also just like, again, I said, I don't know much about Liberia. Mm-hmm. So it's just also like a book about a, maybe a place in the world that Americans should know more about, right? Mm-hmm. And not that we know like a ton about Ghana, but I feel like at least more recently, there's like more, you know, folks like returning and there's like, yeah. you know, like famous celebrities like returning up to Ghana and kind of like mm-hmm. uncovering and re-uncovering some of that history yeah, for, in a for way American that, black people Ghana right. is like our home mm-hmm. like our yeah family. yeah so I feel like maybe like like I think maybe maybe part of the appeal is just that it's like a place where that a lot of people don't know a lot about so maybe that was maybe I don't know because I think the reasons you gave also make sense to me in terms of mm-hmm. centering of the woman and the speculative fiction part I mean I, I think you know when you, when we think about you know speculative fiction and you know, a lot of times when I'm talking or thinking about speculative fiction, I'm thinking of it more in the kind of sense of um, kind of like a subgenre of sci-fi um, where we're thinking about futures, right? And alternative futures, and especially futures in which black and brown people actually exist, as opposed to <laughs> the futures that white people have often imagined where mm-hmm. um, everything's solved. And that means that black and brown people don't, aren't there. <laughs> yeah. The problems are all erased. Or, uh, and mm. the, the erasure is the bodies of, 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 and presence of black and brown people. Mm. Um, this is a, a book that puts us on, that, that, reimagines history in this really interesting way and centers it on um, a woman on black people of various kinds mm-hmm. um, deals honestly with the conflicts between them mm-hmm. um, the you know inability to understand each other to communicate to be able to communicate with each other those sorts of things um, and then sort of sets us on the precipice of imagining mm-hmm. a world in which these different black people would have been able to come together to make something Mm -hmm. um and you know 
we know historically like there are problems with that um with the 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 hit the uh let's say the present that actually exists but is it like almost putting us on this sort of separate historical trajectory so that we could imagine that they did create this and this could have gone forward um i don't know i'm just wondering because that's like when we when we talk about the black speculative imagination that's often the reason why it's so engaging and interesting and wonderful because it does offer us an alternative way of seeing ourselves in the future. And there's this really, you know, like there's some, some scholars um, who have, who like, there's this idea called visionary literature, which basically argues that to imagine alternative futures is necessary for um, social transformation. And that, that actually the work of writing and imagining alternative futures is social justice work, right? Yeah. And so I wonder yeah. like, if we see that yeah. here at all. And this might be like taking some of a tangent to let us know where we are in time, but I was kind of thinking yes. about uh, Wakanda as like an interesting example of like reimagining the past, right? Because the idea is that they didn't get colonized, right? And like kind of bringing them into a future where that future is different because of a different past. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like that's like an, like some sort of hybrid to me between like imagining a different future versus like imagining a different past. Um, cause this like ends in the past, right, it right. like bring us to the future. Right. Well, I mean, it, like when we talk about Afrofuturism, even though it has futurism in the title, it's it like always is bi-directional. It, it, okay. it the, yeah. the future, okay. the present and the past together to, you know, create different sort of future trajectories okay. or to help us understand the past in a different way. So if you're reading a book like um, Walter Mosley's 47, that gives you um, a way to rethink about um, slavery and to imagine, you know, a young slave boy as a hero, as a superhero, as opposed mm-hmm. to just like an abject subject, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some benefit in that. There's some something that's good about that. And here you have, again, I think, you know, seeing these what would be just sort of abject black subjects who because of their partially because of their gifts but partially because of their like courage and guile and you know refusal you know when i think of june day it's not so much that he is a badass fighter it's that he refuses to submit right Mm -hmm. and that's the thing that you know in popular culture it's changing a little bit now but in popular culture essentially white people understand slaves as those who submitted to their own subjection, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's not true. <laughs> that's not true at all, right? And this mm-hmm. really gives us a representation of these characters who didn't submit. Like resistance of resistance, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I think kind of in this moment, I think there's this hunger for um, kind of different and diverse narratives of, you know, this period of enslavement, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, thinking about um, a story that not a lot of, you know, people who are educated in the U.S. know about kind of Liberia, but then also in the retelling of the familiar stories that we think we know. I was going to point to that same exact um, uh, point about June Day in terms of uh, the moment in the story where he, um, you know, he uses his strength and he like whoops these white people, right? And, 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 had that been kind of a historically quote unquote accurate story, we know what would have happened to June Day, mm. right? But instead that that doesn't happen. And in this narrative that won't happen. And mm. so there's this, um, I don't know, I think it, it, it does connect to kind of how you feel when you watch a Wakanda, right? Mm-hmm. That black people win, you know, mm-hmm. in the face of, um, you know, oppression in the face of, you know, horrible violence and, you know, whatever, but that Black people win and Black people mm-hmm. can win. And it's, it's just a different kind of reality in which to understand and situate one's mm-hmm. past and history. And I, I think, think that's part of what this offers. I mean, and I think that works with all the characters too, Crystal, right? Like, so that we get that with June Day, where he gets to fight back and he gets to escape, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, they're, they're not able to capture him and they can't hurt him, which is amazing. But we also get that with Bessa where she gets left in the forest right. and she's supposed to die because they leave her out there with um, no food, really, right? So, right. and after five years, she's still there. Yeah. Like she's barely eaten, but she is alive. Mm-hmm. And we get that too with Norman who, mm-hmm. you know, if he hadn't been able to disappear, right. would have been 
also captured and taken with his father to Britain to be studied like some creature in a zoo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, you know, we get these, I, you know, I really, I think that's part of what is so compelling about this book, but I also keep on going back to the story of Charlotte. Cause I think for me, the mm -hmm. moment where I realized that this, the story I thought had been telling by a black woman in a plantation who felt alienated from the other slaves and thought they were ignoring her. Right. And mm -hmm. was like, trying desperately to belong to this community mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when she realizes um is is shown by day right that she has died mm -hmm. that she's a ghost yeah and i'm like oh that is a fascinating story yeah. because yeah. her persistence to survive yeah yeah. was such mm -hmm. that she managed to fool herself into not believing she was dead. Yeah, yeah. Or, well, I, I, mean, I think you're going to say persistent, like I have a baby, right? Right, like, right, right. Speaking but, of day, but day comes right. along later, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, so for yeah, her first true. persistence isn't yeah, about burying a child. It's just mm -hmm. like, actually, yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Well, I think too, it, it points to the, the, um, <laughs> That there's not there's not much difference between being a slave and being dead. She yes. says that at yes. some point, right? Yes. Like I think there was like this great like really um, line in there that she could yeah the fact that she couldn't tell yeah mm -hmm. yeah. All right, so we're gonna leave it there because uh, Todd's giving us the signal for once. I can't believe he's like, I don't the one want who's to. like. <laughs> I did that unwillingly. Good job, Todd. <laughs> um, so I thought we could maybe go around and talk a little bit about what we've been reading, watching, listening to, dancing to, eating, whatever you want to share. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I can start and then I'll sort of call. Um, so I just started Ocean Vong's novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. Uh, so I don't have a lot to say about it because I read just a few pages, but I feel like it's been like highly recommend recommended to me by many people, including a high school friend or Carlton alum. So I look forward to um, reading that. Crystal? I um, just started reading um, Sadia Hartman's Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experience, Experiments, Intimate Histories of Righteous, Riotous Black Girls, Ooh. Troublesome Women, and Queer Radicals. And this book is, is like a combination between um, a history book and like a literature book, um, because what uh, Sadia Hartman is doing is kind of telling the story of um, young Black women and girls who lived in Philadelphia and New York between 1896 and 1935 um, and trying to understand what she refers to as women, what, what, what these women were referred to as wayward. So kind mm. of the, the unrespectable women um, who she says were responsible for a great kind of revolution in Black intimate life. And so she's writing like the history of these women um, but she is such a beautiful writer that it feels like it's literature. Um, yeah, nice. And so it's like one of these things where I'm reading and I want to like read it so fast, but I also want to read it so slow because the words <laughs> are just so good. So that's what I'm reading. Wow, Everyone should read it. What a great recommendation for a book. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Todd? Uh, I am just finishing. I think I might have mentioned this last time we were recording, but uh, The City We Became, um, N.K. Jemison's new book, which... Um, is I think it's really good. It's really strange and it's a really sort of different concept about basically these people who are avatars for cities and have to sort of fight against this sort of like multi, I don't know, uh, multi-universal <laughs> kind of like uh, battle. And, and it's like really interesting. So um, I'm just about to finish that. And I just got my hands on um, from Frank Wilderson's new book, Afro Pessimism. Mm -hmm. I um, am going to take a, a look at soon. And if you have a chance, um, Eastside Freedom Library did a conversation between um, Frank Wilderson and um, I'm going to forget dude's name but he's a, a religious studies professor at at uh, McAllister and they'd had a little conversation mm. they put it on video okay. and so it's on Eastside Freedom Libraries uh you know the, we'll have the link we on can our, link it uh, yeah we can link it we can definitely link it so so if if you're a person who's like what is Afro-pessimism or even if you're a person who's like I hate Afro-pessimism or what any of those <laughs> things um, watching this will be really helpful because the conversation that they have is really, really interesting. And it's a lot of Frank sort of explaining um, his ideas. So awesome. Thank you. Adriana? Well, I just want to say I'm so impressed that you guys are, are out there reading. Um, I, I read um, She Would Be King. <laughs> I also said watching, listening, dancing to, eating. eating. <laughs> 
You okay. said you were, so, you were baking, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have been baking a lot. I have been watching um, Watchmen um, mm. with my son. And uh, that has been uh, kind of mind-blowing, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had read the original um, graphic novel ages ago, so I don't really, like, remember it super well. So he's been reminding me of things. But, you know, you don't have to watch, uh, to read that novel to in order to get into the show. I never read it. Is me neither. beautifully, beautifully filmed, like, and just large mythically, right? It's just, it's a lot to take in. Every episode we look at each other and go, whoa. (laughs) It's my favorite show that I've watched this year. I I love that show. And also Regina King should be king. She's Um, badass. She she should be. She should be king. Lugasi Jr.'s in there. Like that thing is like, true. great people in there. That's cool. Yes. So watch The Watchmen. That's good. Um, So I think we're going to stick with sort of the speculative fiction genre for our next book. So we're going to be reading Binti by Nettie Okorafor. And we're going to just read like, or we could read all of it, but we're going to talk about the first book, which is I think just called Binti because it's a trilogy. Um, Yeah. So look for that. And as always, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, basically all the places where you can find our podcasts. And oh, I think we also decided on the book after Binti, which is going to be the Gilda stories by Joel Gomez which Todd tells us is a really long book. So, you know, get reading. It's uh, long, but it's good. <laughs> but it's good. You're going to thank um, me. Yes, we are. Well, hopefully I'm going to read it and hopefully I'll thank you. Uh, <laughs> I guess we'll see in a few months. All right. So find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And we, you know, also hope that you're all staying safe and healthy. We're sending out big virtual hugs to you all. All the hugs. All the hugs. All the hugs. So thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye, Bye everybody. You've been listening to another brand new episode of The Drip, beaming to you from St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Northfield in Minnesota, and Washington, D.C. The Drip is written, produced, and directed by the All Spoilers Collective, which is Anita, Adriana, Crystal, and me. Bastard Dog is our mascot. Our music is by Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri. We'll be back in about a month with another new episode on Nettie Okorafor's Nebula and Hugo Award-winning novella, Venti. Until then... Be healthy, stay safe, and always use your gifts. Bye.